Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is... <laughs> no, my name is Doug Sands. I am the Meaningful Life Hypnotist. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I focus on helping people find their purpose and really dig into it. So I, I do a lot of work with anxiety and other mental health illnesses, and my goal is to help people step into that lead role of their own life so that they can really pursue their own passion. Yeah. So how do you even, or I guess, how does hypnosis make sense with all of that? <laughs> hypnosis, I have found in my own personal life, it's one of the fastest ways that I'm able to change my own emotions and then build in new habits. Uh, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I struggled quite a bit with my own mental health, with both with depression and anxiety. And I discovered meditation. And meditation was good for, for managing that anxiety and a little bit with depression. But I wanted something deeper. And so when, when researching the science behind it, that's when I stumbled across hypnosis. Hmm. And hypnosis now is one of the main tools that I use for those same issues. And having seen just how effective those are, it's one of the main things that I bring to my clients. Yeah. So I guess, how did you get to there? And like you started with meditation, you ended up with hypnosis, mm -hmm. but like, I guess, what was your journey towards seeking these things out? It was a pretty wild one. I started <laughs> out life thinking I was going to be a fiction author. And mm -hmm. when that didn't pan out, I left college and started jumping around the different seasonal jobs around the U.S., trying to find my purpose, essentially. And I ended up in New Hampshire, and I was depressed. I was dealing with a lot of stuff in my life, but I went on this hike, uh, the Lafayette Ridge in New Hampshire. It's a pretty famous one. And I got lost in a blizzard. And hiking, bushwhacking down this mountain, uh, night was falling Things were getting really cold. I was soaked to the bone because I was overheating through my jacket. And so I had that make or break moment. Like I wasn't freezing to death, but I knew if I didn't get up and continue on, I was going to, I was going to die because no one was coming to save me. I was so far off the path. And when I got out of that experience, I thought I'd just go back to life as it was, but my, my body and my mind would not let me. I was literally shaking for a week afterwards. I was so shaken up. And just out of desperation, I started searching for things that I could use on my own rather than medication and therapy, which I'd been on for a while. But I wanted something that I could have a little more ownership of my own mental health journey. I discovered meditation. And having come from rural Wisconsin, that's where I grew up, it was, it was a, a bit of a shock for me because that was so far out of left field, I never even considered it. Even though nowadays in a lot of places, it's pretty mainstream for me. It was pretty wild and pretty out there. Yeah. So I guess, one, just following the story, how did you end up making your way out of that blizzard? Did you just pick a direction and keep going? <laughs> <laughs> what I did, I missed my turnoff to go back to my car. I was going to follow a different trail back to the parking lot, and I missed that trail. Followed what I, was a false trail, and I ended up bushwhacking through these trees that I don't know if a humankind had ever even touched them. They were, they'd grown literally together like Velcro. These pine trees had interlaced their limbs. And so I was making progress at about a half a mile every single hour. Mm. And it was about nine o'clock and 
you know, it was pitch black in the middle of the mountains. Couldn't see anything except for my headlamp. And I, I ended up not finding a trail. I found a stream and there were two streams on my map. I knew that both of them eventually would cross the highway. I was hoping I was on the one that was close to my car, but uh, I followed the stream and I kept crossing it and going to each side, trying to find the easiest path. At one point, my foot fell through the ice and I soaked one of my feet. That was pretty psychologically, a, <laughs> that was a hard moment. Uh, the real make or break moment came when I was hiking, trying to hike up this very steep hill to follow this river. And I got to the, I got halfway up and I slid down. I did that three times and then I laid in the snow. Hmm. And having dealt with mental health and suicidal thoughts before, I, I thought about just giving up and just laying there and freezing to death. And some part of me realized that I didn't want to die. And that was, that was huge in that moment, having dealt with those thoughts for so long. I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to keep living the way I was living. And so that's really what got me up and kept me going. And I guess just sheer determination. I remember just stumbling along like a zombie in, in a daze <laughs> and eventually realizing, hey, I'm on a trail. And I look up and there's the lights of the highway. And I, I was blown away. Mm. I still had like four to five miles to shuffle back to my car to get back to my um, my bed for the night. But I made it out. I guess it was just stubbornness and determination <laughs> and a little bit of a realization out of it. Yeah. Do you look back at that moment kind of with, with fondness now rather than uh, fear and terror? <laughs> yeah, I do. I if I, if I really think about it and put myself back in there, I can still feel a little bit of that terror. I mean, uh, that's a memory that's probably going to stick with me for the rest of my life. But I really want to go back and hike that when I can actually see see the views. Because when I got to the top, I couldn't see anything more than 10, direct, 10 feet in any direction. Mm. I really, yeah, it's become such a big part of my life that even though it was a really traumatic experience at the time, it's something that I wouldn't, I would not trade back in a heartbeat. It's something that's led me to the great places that I am today. Yeah, definitely. So as you were discovering meditation and hypnosis, what were the resources that you stumbled upon that sort of guided you along? And I guess like, you know, authors, books and whatever that might be. Yeah. I went through a lot of podcasts, which, you know, as nice. podcasters, both of us, it's not really too surprising, but <laughs> I discovered a podcast on Buddhism um, early on in my meditation journey. And that was uh, Secular Buddhism by Noah Roshetta. And that I absolutely loved. It really broke down the concepts of meditation and Buddhism without really bringing in the the, es the esoteric beliefs and the, the religion that a lot of uh, Eastern traditions, the, the uh, original Buddhism things had. And so I learned a lot through that. I also learned um, quite a bit from the Headspace meditation app. I tried a bunch of them, 10% uh, Happier, Calm meditation app. I think Headspace was my favorite. I don't know, that one just resonated with me. Hmm. And then when I discovered hypnosis, there was one podcast that really stood out to me, and that was Brain Software by Mike Mandel. He's hmm. a pretty famous uh, instructor in the hypnosis community. Cool. So I guess now let's break down what hypnosis is because, I mean, 
personally, I've never been hypnotized and I don't think I have any firsthand experience with it. And so what is, what is it? And then what's happening? Yeah. I typically, when someone asks me a question like that, I typically uh, start off with what hypnosis isn't Hmm. because there are so many misconceptions about what exactly it is. The first one I always get people ask is hypnosis mind control. And it's physically not possible to Mm. mind control anyone because when you're working in hypnosis, you are working with a person's unconscious mind and that stems from that fight, flight, or freeze response. If your unconscious disagrees with anything the hypnotist says, if the hypnotist breaks that trust by trying to manipulate you, your unconscious is going to bring you out of trance because it wants to keep you safe. So that's the first one that I really deal with. The second one... um, people ask what happens if I get, if I get stuck in trance and I tell them that hypnosis is a state that we create. It's not physically possible to get stuck in it. Uh, just like with that first example, your mind wants to keep you safe. Eventually it's going to wake you up to get food, but we're doing this naturally all the time, whether we are getting lost in a really good movie or podcast or book, or we're zoning out on the highway that's the same thing. It's just a lighter form of hypnosis and we're, we're doing it to ourselves all the time. And so looking at what hypnosis actually is, hypnosis is about bringing, a, bringing your mind to a deep level or slowing down your brainwave frequency so that the critical part of your minds are a little more permeable to suggestion. So looking at the brainwave patterns, when we're in normal conversation or just doing our everyday thing, we're in beta and that's 12 to 20 Hertz, I believe. Mm. And anything below that, that's where our brain starts slowing down. When we're all the way down, when we're in Delta at the very bottom, we're sleeping. Mm. But between that right under beta, you've got alpha, which is a Mm. light trance where you're, you know, in that, uh, in the zone, in the flow state, or if you're watching a good movie and below that between alpha and Delta, you've got theta. And theta is that sweet spot that we're really aiming for in hypnosis. It's that really creative part of your mind that if you've ever had a really good idea right before you fall asleep, that's because your mind was passing through theta on its way to delta. In fact, um, I believe it was Edison. He would train himself to go into theta state so that he could have creative ideas. He would fall asleep in a chair with a heavy ball bearing in his hand. And as... Uh, he entered that theta state just as he tipped into delta when his body fully relaxed, the ball bearing would fall from his hand. He'd wake himself up and he conditioned himself how to go back there. And personally, I think that's how he created so many amazing inventions. Hmm. But going back to that, we get people to theta state for two reasons. One, that critical part of your mind is a little more open to suggestion. We call it the critical faculty. It's like a gatekeeper for your mind. And when you're in theta Positive suggestions can slip past that critical faculty and go into your unconscious mind. That's how we make such amazing changes so quickly, because essentially we're taking that, I don't know, 28 to 30 days to learn a new habit, and we're condensing it down to a single 60-minute session. The other part of the reason theta is so important, theta is intensely creative, and the unconscious mind does not communicate in words. It communicates in feelings and images. And so in theta state, we're activating those creative parts of our mind 
And we are communicating in with the unconscious in a language that it can understand. And so when you're hypnotizing someone, you're bringing them to that theta state, you are communicating with the unconscious mind, either through direct suggestion or visualization, using a bunch of tools from neuroscience and psychology and other things. And then you bring them back out. And at the very end of it, we double check our work and send them on their way. So I guess there's like a number of questions that arise from that. Um, yeah. So how do you get someone to that? And I guess another one is I've heard that there are different types of people that are, I guess, different levels of suggestible. So I guess how do you work with that? And so, yeah, the first part is sort of how do you get someone to that state? And then how do you work with people that are less suggestible? Yeah, let's start with the first one. When someone hypnotizes another person, uh, they start off with, with what's called an induction. And there are many different types of inductions. The uh, original one was um, what we call PMR or progressive muscle relaxation. If you've, ever, if you've ever been in a guided meditation where you're focusing on your feet and then your ankles and then your legs and you're relaxing all these different parts, that is essentially a, that's essentially a PMR induction. And when we're looking at the brainwaves, again, with uh, meditation, when you're in solo meditation, your brainwaves are actually going faster than normal. But in guided meditation, you're actually dropping down the scale. And some guided meditations actually do get you to that deep theta state. But back to the induction. When people will talk about the, the swinging watch, uh, mm. that, that is an induction, essentially. Uh, no one really does that anymore. Um, I don't know if they ever did or if that was just kind of a gimmick. But sure. Um, there are many different ways to induce trance, whether it's a slow relaxation like PMR, whether it's focusing on, I don't know, swinging watch or something else. Um, there's also uh, what we essentially reverse engineering the process of trance. Um, so we elicit the trance uh, phenomenon, essentially. So when someone goes into trance, there's usually a, a couple of things that happen their um, limbs go a little bit rigid, their lower jaw loosens a little bit, and they sometimes get flushed. And so we actually reverse engineer that because when we do that, we are um, sending the signal back up the pipeline. If you're saying like your limbs are, I don't know, rigid in this state, you must be in hypnosis. And so that's one of the ways, that's mm -hmm. how you see street hypnotists doing these really rapid inductions. There's a number of ways to do inductions, but it's all about focus. A person needs to be able to focus to go into hypnosis because otherwise their mind's too scared. They're not going to go into that deep state. And that's why hypnotizing someone with ADHD or ADD, it's, it's very difficult to do. But going to the second part of that question, I personally believe that aside from those people with attention disorders, there are very few people who cannot actually go into hypnosis because we're doing it all the time to ourselves. Uh, I gave the examples of the movies and the, the car, but anytime you're zoning out, you're putting yourself into a light trance. And if you have the skill to do that, you can put yourself into a deeper trance. You are essentially showing yourself that you can be hypnotized. Yeah. So I guess, do you hypnotize yourself? <laughs> I do, yeah. So for a long while, I was, 
I was meditating and then I learned hypnosis and I learned how self-hypnosis and then that kind of replaced my meditation. And then I realized that the two, the two are, they're, they're similar, but they're not the same. And so now my morning routine, I do 20 minutes of meditation and then I focus on, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes of self-hypnosis. And people think, people often ask me, you know, do you just wave the magic hypnosis wand and fix everything? <laughs> it's, it's not quite that simple. You got to break things down into, into steps. And so I've actually got a notebook that I've written out goals and things and I've broken down into steps. And so each day I just take a small chunk that I want to focus on, hit that, and then uh, go about the rest of my day. Yeah. So then I guess, how do you get better at it? Because uh, like, obviously, whenever you're first starting out, you sort of figuring out what works and what doesn't, I guess, how, how do you flex that muscle? How do you improve that skill? <laughs> As with anything, a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. uh, for me personally, self-hypnosis was very, very great. Because in self-hypnosis, you have to be both the, uh, the subject being hypnotized and the person doing the hypnotizing. So you get to you get to see what techniques actually are working, at least for you. And you get to also experience what it feels like in hypnosis. One of the difficult things about putting someone in hypnosis, at least at first, is that you, you can't actually read their mind. You can't know what they're experiencing in that moment. You're going off their external cues. And sometimes people are completely into it. Like, uh, we joke in the hypnosis community about wet noodles, about people who mm. just uh, fall out of their chair because they relax so much. And there are other people who exhibit no signs at all. Like you really have to just kind of guess where you are in the process. Uh, a lot of practice for me personally. So I also do stage shows and I get a lot of questions about, you know, is that, is that ethical as, as a change <laughs> therapist or not, not therapist, um, change worker, someone who works with mental health. And at first I had qualms with that, but then I realized if I could hypnotize 30 strangers on a stage, that gives me so much more practice and so much more ability to work with people on these issues that are really affecting their lives. And so for me personally, it was a lot of self-hypnosis and a lot of uh, stage work and practicing with, you know, practicing with 30 volunteers at a time, as opposed to one volunteer, you get good pretty quickly. At what point did you make the decision that this is something that you wanted to help other people with? And how did you reach that decision? Mm. When I first started learning hypnosis, like self-hypnosis techniques that I could use on my own mental health, and I realized the results I was getting, even with the rudimentary tools I had, I knew there was something here. There was something real about hypnosis. And I don't know what... I don't know exactly what it was about it that hooked me so much. I've always been interested in psychology and I fell in love with meditation. And I think it's just a perfect unity between those two. But that moment when I realized that other people were doing it and other people were helping, you know, change so many lives with this tool that it gave me hope. And that was the first time I ever really had hope about career. I'd been searching for purpose and I hadn't really found anything yet. And it was the first time that something lined up perfectly between what I actually liked doing and what actually made a difference in the world. So I guess there's a lot of terminology that uh, kind of might fly by. And so it's like the 
the trance and suggestion or impression. So like, what are some of these terms that like, you know, it give people the, the rudiments of the communication in this space? Yeah. <laughs> some of the, some of the terms we talk about induction and induction just means getting someone in trance. Uh, there's also tr- the word trance. Mm-hmm. Uh, trance and hypnosis are kind of interchangeable. If you want to get technical about it, trance is kind of something that you're doing by yourself. Hypnosis is something that you're doing with another person. Um, let's see what else. Suggestions. We talk a lot about suggestibility. And that it's it, it kind of makes sense, but it's not fully encompassing the idea because... Being suggestible in a hypnotic state, you're not like easily manipulated. Your mind is still running. Oftentimes when I put people in hypnosis and they come out of it, they're like, you know, I heard every single word you were saying. Like, is that supposed to happen? Of course. I mean, if you can't hear what words I'm saying, then you can't focus enough to be in hypnosis. Hmm. Your mind is always listening. And because of that, it's not going to be suggestible to any negative suggestions. So that's one caveat on that. Um, Post-hypnotic suggestions, in hypnosis, we can build in triggers and um, anchors, I should say, Hmm. to different things out in the real world that will bring up those memories, those positive emotional experiences, whatever we want it to be. I know certain hypnotists will link the color red to something really positive. Like every time you see the color red, you will feel empowered and confident and you'll just feel amazing in life. And sometimes, um, going back to the idea of anchors and triggers, uh, this is a this is an idea that comes both in psychology and hypnosis. Anchors are the events that happen in the real world that trigger something, a response in us, and our mind plays an automatic loop because it's done it so many times. Uh, a common trigger is every time you get in a car to drive, you don't consciously think about putting your seatbelt on and adjusting the mirror or everything, whatever, your routine. It's just naturally, and it happens. And the same thing with brushing your teeth. Like you've done it so many times that you don't even have to think about it. But the problem is that we can link negative anchors as well. When someone has a phobia of, say, dogs, every time they see a dog, their brain has linked that dog as an anchor that triggers an emotional response. And so I, I guess those are the, those are some of the groundwork uh, terminology. Do you have any other terms that you want to throw? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think that also helps kind of link us to more of the conversation, which, so, I mean, immediately thinking of like that, a trigger that you might have developed through a phobia or something, uh, I think there's a lot of conversations about like using hypnosis to treat something like post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, how how have you been, I guess, effective in treating some of these things? And like, I guess, what have you worked with and how has it worked out? <laughs> ah, yeah, it. I am to this day amazed at how much you can actually do with hypnosis. And I think part of that is because every single problem that we have it's got some mental component to it. Uh, I got into hypnosis for anxiety relief, but hypnosis uh, historically has been extremely good at relieving pain, hmm. relieving chronic pain. I've had a lot of success with that. 
I've had a lot of success with building confidence. Personally, I don't see a lot of smoking cessation, even though that's a really popular form of hypnosis. Hmm. Uh, I know a lot of people who have uh, who have built entire practices just being a smoking cessation hmm. specialist. Uh, personally, I've actually gotten into some of the the physical, the more the healing kind of with your mind uh, aspects of hypnosis. I was actually working with. Um, a cancer research group out of Salt Lake City uh, recently. And I wrote for them a essentially like a 22-page dissertation on hmm. what hypnosis is and how it can help cancer patients. It's actually approved by the National Cancer Institute as a methodology of treatment. And I was, to this day, I'm still blown away. I'm still learning new things every single day, it seems, about what you can use hypnosis for. I had a client come in for irritable bowel syndrome. I didn't think you could fix that with hypnosis, but the University of Michigan proved that you did with a study. So hmm. I've worked with nail biting. I've worked with I, someone who had a fear of putting on shoes. Like there's so many random things that you can do with this tool. So I guess after spending a lot of time in this space, and now it's kind of your, your livelihood, uh, what is one thing that's kind of like super nitty gritty, super deep in the space that you're kind of like, I don't know, proud of or excited about, like what are the uncharted spaces in hypnosis that Ah, you're exploring? Ooh. When I get a client that I see for multiple sessions, um, it was someone who really sees the value and the changes they're making. I love to go really deep with them. There is this... There's a state in hypnosis called called the Esdale state. Hmm. So we talked about theta. That uh, when someone goes into a deep state, they're in that um, that theta state, like high theta. The theta, the Esdale state, I should say, that is the deepest level of trance that we can go as human beings. When you are there, you are like dead to the world, essentially, <laughs> like in a good way, because mm-hmm. um, you are. You are in such a relaxed place mentally that you just don't really care what's happening. Like when people get to the Esdale state, it sometimes takes, I don't know, a couple minutes to bring them out of it because they're like, ah, I don't really want to leave here. It's it's a really pleasant state. I mean, I've only been to it, been in that state myself a couple of times. And so when someone is looking to go deeper in hypnosis and really experience the limits of what's possible that's where we go. The Esdale state, it's it's somewhere between like lower theta and upper delta because hmm. your your mind just does funky things. People have uh, unsuggested catalepsy, which is where if they were in that state, I'd pick up their arm by the wrist and I'd let it go and it just hang there in the air, very stiff and rigid. And so it's, I don't, I don't really understand hmm. it, but I'm fascinated by it and I'm still exploring it. Yeah. What, I guess, what is different and what are you capable of affecting within that state as opposed to just a normal theta state? In Esdale state, subjects don't typically respond well to suggestion, not respond mm. well. They don't respond to suggestion at all because mm. you are so relaxed, you, you can't be bothered. Um, trance of any kind is a deeply healing state. Your mind slows down and your body naturally kicks on those healing um healing processes that we have in sleep. And so when you're in that Esdale state, that is a very, it is is the most effective healing state in hypnosis. 
for someone who is, if they're having physical problems and we can't really pinpoint exactly what it is, that's what I would recommend. Because going into this Esdale state, you are allowing your body to heal itself at such a rapid pace. Um, I would say it's also really good for expanding a person's idea of what's possible. Mm-hmm. For me in my own anxiety journey, when I discovered meditation, it wasn't so much that, a, that meditation did away with my anxious feelings. It gave me a moment of pause between the stimulus, my thought, and the emotion, my reaction. And just knowing that first and foremost, there was that pause, it allowed me to question what else was possible. And so the Esdale state, when people go into that, they see just how powerful their own minds are and they start to question what else can I change? And so after the Esdale state, I often see people coming back for a ton of different things from mindset to weight loss to just improving their life in general. Yeah, that's awesome. So I guess last one on this front, and then we'll get to the difficult spiritual questions. What would you suggest for people who are curious about uh, exploring this hypnosis world, community, space, whatever? (laughs) You bet. I actually get that question quite a bit. And so I I don't want to plug anything, but on my Instagram, I started doing a free hypnotic test drive. Every single uh, Friday, I give out a new session, like 15 to 20 minutes, not just to put people in a good state, but to actually create change. Like I've done one on anxiety relief, one on seasonal affective disorder, one on panic attacks and food cravings, other things like that. Uh, My handle is at making your meaning. That's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. If someone is looking to learn hypnosis, I would recommend you check out the free resources. There are a couple really good podcasts out there. The Work Smart Hypnosis podcast and the the Brain Software podcast are definitely my favorite ones. Um, And then if they want to explore further, I would recommend perhaps going to a, a weekend certification course just to learn a couple of basic techniques. And if they want to go even further, getting fully certified, whether that's through a college or through a, um, a well-trusted trainer in the hypnosis community. Cool. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So jumping into the tough questions. What is the role of spirituality or religion in your life? And it's a little unique with you because it kind of interlinks. <laughs> I have, oh, I have had a roller coaster ride with spirituality and religion. I grew up in a Christian household, and I, I went to a Christian Bible camp, and I loved this camp so much. It was such a foundational part of my life that even when I had my depressive episode my senior year of high school. I, I still went I, and I was questioning um, religion entirely. Like I didn't really believe in it anymore. I still went and worked for two and a half summers at this Bible camp <laughs> because I believed in camp so much and because it had changed my life so much. And I was really questioning around that time, trying to figure out what I believe because I'm teaching these kids this, this uh, Bible that I don't really believe anymore. And it wasn't until, again, that hike, that I realized, like, I can't keep pretending. Like, up until that point, I, it'd probably been two years since I'd really believed anything. But it, that hike also showed me that I'm someone who really wants to believe in something. Even though the, the style of Buddhism that I, I practice, it doesn't, it, it's not connected to a deity or to a higher power or anything. 
it's still a like a, like a spiritual practice because you are devoting you're devoting your time your mental capacity to a practice to just simply better yourself and it, it's a little bit esoteric but i think that every time that i stray away from buddhism i always find the the edges of my life getting rough like i mm. I, I don't know. I, I get a little more irritable and I get a little more testy around people. <laughs> and then I've got to remind myself, like the, the tools that got me here to this good place, uh, some of these tools I've got to keep up and I've got to maintain. And spirituality for me is one of those things. Like, I don't know, like a daily shower. I've just got to make it a part of my life. Otherwise, uh, my life is missing something. Yeah, definitely. And I, I definitely relate to that kind of experience of still remaining in the community uh after falling out mm. of religion I, I was raised catholic and so i i recognize that part of the experience uh <laughs> what is your definition of god oh my definition of god is is a higher power that someone believes in uh, man that <laughs> that seems like that seems like it a higher power that someone believes in, whether that's a a very defined thing like a Catholic or Lutheran God, or it's something kind of esoteric like I don't know the universe or like uh, a universal mind or something, something that someone believes in, and the other part of that that they put their trust in. I think for me personally, when I was putting my trust in myself. That was that was what a huge part of my journey. I at first I kept putting the the onus on on this God, on on hoping he would change me or she would change me, and eventually I realized like the only person that's going to change myself at least in this life, as far as I believe, is going to be myself. And so I guess that's the reason I don't personally I don't have so much of a God figure in my life anymore. Still trying to figure that one out, but I guess. We all are. Yeah, definitely. What is free will? Ooh, free will. Free will is the ability to decide and to make the mistakes. Free will is the ability to go against our best interests because sometimes we need to learn. I always say that we don't get the adventure that we wanted. We get the adventure that we need. And that's been true time and time again in my life and in all the people, all the adventures that I've talked to. Uh, we go on a vacation and we're like, we're going to have an awesome time on this beach. <laughs> and then you, your uh, bus breaks down and um, there's, I don't know, a local case of dysentery or something. And <laughs> it, it's definitely not the adventure you wanted, but it changes you in that way. And I think that being able to make mistakes in free will is so critical to our our learning, our growth. I think if personally, I think that if we if we didn't have any free will, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the bumps and the bruises to to show our growth. Like if it was all planned out and we had no free will, I think that things would be very streamlined and very effective. Because personally, like if you had I don't know centuries to design Earth and the the, the universe <laughs> in the future why would you create so much inefficiency 
in the system? <laughs> Why would you create so much pain in that? I think mm-hmm. personally, that's my sign that there is at least free some free will in the system so that we can make our own mistakes and, and then learn from them. I'm going to make a verbal flag to plant there for us to discuss that in the next podcast, because uh, your experience with hypnosis and kind of knowing the mind a little bit more uh, intimately, uh, I want to have more of a free will discussion with you. But <laughs> absolutely. On to the next one, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, when I was growing up, I always thought we'd go to heaven, very Christian heaven. And um, for a while, I thought we would uh, become part of the universe. And then currently, I believe, personally, I believe that's just it. And for a while, that terrified me. I was like, there's got to be something more. But what if it doesn't have to be? I mean, if someone is if someone is dead and you know there's not no afterlife, that's it. You're not you're not aware that you're dead. You're just you're just dead. I mean, when you're sleeping for 12 hours, when you're really zonked out, you're not aware that you've slept for 12 hours. If you're dead for I don't know five million years, you're not aware that you're dead for five million years. I think I don't know. I think that a lot of people have a fear of death because they also have a fear of living. And Mm -hmm. life in itself is risky. Like you can die at any time and you can leave regrets. You can leave hurts. You can leave so many things. And in all likelihood, we probably will no matter how hard we try. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go out and try. I think that for me personally, that was liberating because I, I stopped putting so much emphasis on an afterlife or on heaven. And I started realizing like I've, I have the power to make this life good or this life bad. And as long as I pursue what I, what I believe to be right, it's going to be all right, no matter what happens. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> How do you determine what good behavior is? Hmm. What good behavior? Good behavior is what feels right to me, but also helps other people. And examining that, I'm realizing that what feels good to me is probably a a um, a construct of society because you know mm. whatever is whatever feels right to different societies is going to be different. But I think good behavior is something that builds up both parties, whatever helps the other person, but also whatever helps fulfill you. I I, I find it so interesting how people who give often receive um, so much more in return. Typically, it's just like a really positive feeling of fulfillment and that kind of thing. That's what I think my definition of that, something that benefits both parties. And that, that doesn't take away from both parties. Like when you, have, when you have love to give and you give it away, you get more love because it, you, you create it. It's, it you, you get more love by practicing out giving it. And so something that benefits both parties, and doesn't take away from them. I like that a lot. (laughs) How do we reduce the division? The division. 
I always get that. I need to alter this question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the division in general, but I guess lately, or at least for the past like five or six years, it's been the division politically, at least in the United States, uh-huh. but also just the division um, of ideas and the conflict and just the separation yeah, between people. <laughs> I would say, mm, I, I feel like it's it's partly human nature to be divisive. And I don't know. I don't know if we will be able to get out of that. I don't want to say that in a fatalistic way. Like there's no point in trying. I, I just realized that there are millions of years of evolution that that took to create humans as as we are right now. Perhaps thousands. I don't know exactly the timeline. But we're if we're trying to change our bodies, our minds, how they wire and how they run, uh, we're we're tr- we're outpacing we're trying to outpace time and that's one thing that humankind has never been able to do i think working towards that is absolutely a noble goal i think to do that one of the biggest things that i i have found is working on ourselves first the the buddhists have a saying that you cannot fill um, a teacup from an empty teapot and you definitely can't do that if the teapot is broken, if it doesn't hold any water. Personally, I have found the most ability to connect with people after I fixed the broken parts of myself, after I did the self-work and really took the time to look at what was what was hurting me and how was I hurting myself? Because that not only taught me, um, taught me resilience, that I can withstand differing opinions and still be my own person, it also taught me empathy. It said, these are the parts that really hurt you in your life. And most likely, a lot of other people are feeling that as well. And I think that different types of suffering, even though they may, might look different, like for one person, maybe you lost a grandmother. For another person, maybe it's a, a favorite family dog or something. But you, we all have these through lines of human emotion. And if you can even connect to that one nugget of that human emotion, that's that's such a great place to start. Yeah. <laughs> and that always bridges me ver- very well into the next question, which is, do you believe humans are evil by nature? I do not. I think that humans are neutral. They're, they're blank slates. I think that through our conditioning, we are um, brought up to be either cruel or helpful or good, I guess. And I think that human beings, as their as their natural self, they are neutral. I, I don't think that I don't think a baby is naturally good. I don't think a baby is naturally bad. I think that their environment plays a huge role in shaping them. And on that thought experiment, I'm thinking of like a a human that has no has no outside influence, but that would physically be impossible. I mean, a human that that had no outside influence, whether it was the the timing of when they got fed or the timing of when they met other people or how those other people reacted. There's no way that we could be, um, we could be completely, I don't, I don't want to say untainted, but free of outside influence. And so that outside influence is really what shapes us, I believe, to be what we call good or evil. Yeah. <laughs> What do you think humanity is heading towards in the future? Oh, depends on the day. 
I think um, when I'm when I'm feeling really really down, I worry a lot about the environment. And some days I feel really uh, I feel activistic. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> I feel impelled towards activism about the environment. But then other days I feel like, well, I don't know. I I can't save the world. I guess we're just all going to burn. And so I really don't know. I also think that humankind is incredibly adaptable. And on the days I'm feeling hopeful, that's what I feel. I feel like even if, even if things with the environment or, I don't know, a world war or something, even if they completely go off the rails, humankind is so flexible and so adaptable and so ready to, to learn from its mistakes. I do know that the course of history has not always been an upward trajectory, but I think that over time, like I think that we've we've we progress. I mean, we've learned, we've built on our past successes, and I think that in the future, I personally think we're going to space. I think we're probably going to end up um, colonizing a bunch of different um, different planets. And the question I really want to know is. Are we going to be able to do that before we run out of resources or before we blow ourselves up or something? I don't know. It's, it's anyone's guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think about that a lot and goes into the, fer- the Fermi paradox <laughs> and stuff like that. But speaking about the future, what, what are you optimistic about for our future? Oh, uh, the first thing that came up very short term is an end to the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be able to travel and, um, do all the things that we we can do. I think the coronavirus, even though it was extremely negative in so many senses, I think it gave us as a world so much because it was one of those generational traumas uh, like World War One or World War Two or, I don't know, the Kennedy assassination that an entire group of people remembers as their experience. And only this time, it's the entire world. Like, I don't know if we've ever had something quite like that. I'm sure we have, but we've never been this connected at the mm-hmm. same time with it. Um, I'm very interested to see how people will embrace gratitude or thankfulness when things really open up and start uh, seeming like they were before. I think hoping for the the very distant future, I'm, I'm very hopeful that things that, as you said, the divisiveness that we will figure it out because looking at, I don't know, space and stuff and the long-term future of humanity, I, I don't know if we're going to be a, a, like an entire planetary civilization one day where I mean, it seems like we're kind of headed that way. But my hope is that we can at least get over our natural divisiveness enough that we don't blow ourselves up and that we can at least function in a very large society. Yeah. What makes you content? Mm. <laughs> I really like the quote. I believe it was, I don't know if it was Emerson or Thoreau, but man is content in, oh, I'm going to butcher it. Man is content in accordance with how much he can let alone. That's not the exact quote, but I think when I'm meditating and when I realize just how little I need to actually be okay and that makes me very happy because if I can be happy just sitting on a pillow on the floor um, 
and just realizing what I've got around me, like that's, what else do I need? Like, if that's my baseline of happiness is that's what I define is like, this is, this is okay. Like the world is my oyster essentially. And so what makes me content is just that mental clarity and that, that freedom to realize I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> when will you be satisfied? Oh, that is a tougher one <laughs> because being content in the moment when you're meditating is very, I mean, it gets easier. But bridging that to every single moment of your life, that gets tough. I am, I am still not where I want to go in life. I, mean, I, I, I guess I should say I haven't arrived yet. And part of me wonders if I ever will. And the other part of me wonders if I ever want to fully arrive. I personally believe that to, to really enjoy life, you constantly have to be growing, whether that's learning a new hobby or progressing in your business or, I don't know, work or finding something that really fulfills you. I think when, when my business is fully sustainable, that I'm able to do all the things that I can do, that I, that I want to do within reason, and that I'm still impacting people's lives, I think that that crossover between impact in other people's lives and having enough time and money and resources to actually enjoy my own. Yeah, definitely. To, I always have to preface this question as it's not an attack, but <laughs> what's the point? The point, uh, the point of life of existence, I take it? In whatever direction you want to take that. Temple? Yeah. <laughs> the point. Mm. There's this concept from Buddhism that really, that first came up in my mind, and it's, the idea of nothingness in that essentially there is no point. Like there is no one truth. There is no one good or bad and there's no one course in life. And the Buddhists also say that nothingness when grasped incorrectly is like picking up a poisonous snake from the wrong end. <laughs> because if you think about nothingness, about there being no point, then, you know, why do we do anything? I think Essentially, I grappled with that question quite a bit. And what came out of it is that we make our own meaning. And that, that is a line that has stuck with me time and time again. I actually named my podcast the Making Me Do Podcast because of it. But it came out of a phrase my therapist first said when I came in to deal with my first impressive episode. And she said that we are meaning-making creatures. We see the world around us, and then we interpret it into a story in our own heads. And I took that one step further to say that the meaning that we're searching for, we have to make it. Like, it's not going to come prepackaged. Like, when I was struggling, I used to Google, like, what is the meaning of life? Or what is my <laughs> purpose? And never got any satisfying answers. And it, it was because I had to create it for myself. Because every single person's meaning is different. I think that when you realize there is no one universal point, if, if it doesn't completely depress you, it allows you that freedom to, to create your own universal point. Yeah. <laughs> What's something about you that people don't normally know? Mm. Oftentimes that I'm a hypnotist. That's, that's a big one. <laughs> um, they also don't know that I am mm, deeply introverted and 
introspective and a little bit sensitive. Um, so I so I do stage shows as we mentioned, and I have I have built up the ability to to present and to be I don't know in this in this extroverted world that we live in. But at heart, I'm a I'm a deeply introverted person. Like I I personally right now in this coronavirus, I am fine because <laughs> we I've got my partner and uh, she and I are doing amazing, and she's pretty much the only human contact I seem to need. Like occasionally, I don't know, I call up a friend or like every month or so. But when I am really in the zone on something, I tend to shut out other people, not intentionally and not even like to their, to my detriment. It's just because I am so in the zone on something. And yeah, that's what I, I think people misjudge on how, how deep I go mentally and really explore my own mind. Hmm. <laughs> what advice do you have for people in general? Oh, I love to tell people that our emotions are so malleable. We can change them. When I was depressed, I thought emotions were something that happened to me. And then I learned that our emotions are just electrical impulses. Like the, the typical emotion, it only lasts about 90 seconds on average. And what we, what we do instead, we... We repeat that. We get caught in that loop of, I don't know, after the 90 seconds is up, we just get started over again. That's how we get this loop of depression for a day, for a week or a year or whatever it is. I would say that whatever you find to manage your own emotions, find something, whether it's meditation or hypnosis or yoga or just going for a walk. We all need to be able to manage our emotions because if we are living at the, the beck and call of our emotions, we're not really living our life. We are living in reaction to something else. And that's taking control of your emotions and choosing where you go from there. That's the first step of really setting up an awesome life. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I neglected to ask about your podcast, so I will ask about that before the last last question so tell me about your podcast <laughs> yeah i started a podcast it, it was a a passion project that had been in the work for like three years but COVID 19 happened and had all this free time i always thought i was going to write a blog because I, I was a writer and i realized that writing was like i was good at it but it was like pulling teeth and, and when you don't like doing something you just don't do it and i discovered podcasting. And it, it seems so simple and so intuitive. And when I got into it, I just fell in love with it. Um, people, people often told me that, uh, you know, you, you've got a great voice for radio or something. And <laughs> I said, I'm not going to do anything with my voice. I'm going to be a writer. And lo and behold, I became a <laughs> hypnotist and a podcaster. So I guess. Uh, so on the Making Meaning podcast, I interview people who have stepped into that lead role of their life. I interview a lot of adventurers, like hikers and world travelers, because that's kind of where I'm at. I hike and I ski and I climb and I travel. But I also interview people who have taken really daring leaps to discover their own purpose. I was just recently talking with um, someone who left a very strict Muslim faith in um, South Africa to live their own life in England. And the Making Meaning podcast is all about those ideas that I touched on earlier, that we make our own interpretation of the world, and then we also make our own fulfillment. 
And so I'm really, I don't, I don't know, over the course of this, trying to build a roadmap for people to help them find that fulfillment. Yeah, definitely. Last question, potentially most importantly, cake or pie? <laughs> oh, pie. Pie without a <laughs> doubt. There's uh, so many different pies. And yeah, personally, I... Uh, I, I've discovered a, a little bit of a gluten intolerance. And so that really sways my decision. It's got to be pie. <laughs> Corollary to that question is always what is best pie? Oh, again, that really depends on what I'm feeling. When I was a kid, I loved banana cream, but now that I'm an adult, it's too, it feels too artificial. <laughs> um, key lime pie is really good. Or if I'm just feeling like a sugar bomb, I just really want, I don't know, an Oreo pie or like a Reese's peanut butter cup pie or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doug, thank you so much for doing this with me. Where can we find you and your things? Absolutely. So my main website is anywherehypnosis.com. I do hypnosis with people all around the world. I guess the really only requirement is that you know English and you've got an internet connection. Uh, I mentioned that Instagram with the free hypnosis, that is my handle is at making your meeting. Those are the really two big places to find me. I'd say that's got all my information and all the little freebies that you can get. Yeah. And where can we find your podcast? Ah, the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find it on any, any of the main podcasting apps. It's on Stitcher and iTunes or Apple. Um, just search making meeting podcast. And if you can't find it just by searching it, go to anywherehypnosis.com slash podcast, and that will lead you to the directory. Well, awesome. Uh, once again, thank you so much for doing this with me. It's been a really nice and deep conversation, which is exactly what I love having on BitDepth. Uh, I'm Santiago Ramones. And I'm Doug Sands. <laughs> you can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. Bloom is available now, streaming everywhere. Put it on in the background or show it to your friends so you can all enjoy it together. You can also buy it on Bandcamp and get bonus content so you can sit alone in the dark with your headphones on and listen to the album in its entirety while reading and looking at the bonus content. I also make music with PowerCycle, an experimental electronic trio. Our first completely improvised album, Too Many Damn Cables, is streaming everywhere. To support this podcast, leave reviews, comments, tell your friends about it, and buy my music, because by supporting me, you're supporting the podcast. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are, love never fails, it's going to be okay, I might be wrong, 